Welcome back to the Dealmakers Podcast Show with serial entrepreneur Alejandro Cremades, best-selling author of The Art of Startup Fundraising and co-founder at Panthera Advisors. In this podcast, we ask our guests about their successful acquisitions and financing rounds. Hey guys, so just a quick overview here on Panthera Advisors as I think it might be of value to you. So Panthera Advisors exist in order to help founders that are in the process of raising capital or get their company acquired. I actually started the company out of incredible frustration because during my entrepreneurial journey, which involved building, financing, scaling, and exiting companies, I could not find a resource that was founder friendly and I could not get the type of support that I was seeking. So as a result, I made a ton of mistakes along the way. So if you're looking to raise capital or you are looking to get your company acquired or just need some sound financial planning and you're looking to get the best possible outcome in the shortest period of time, feel free to learn more by visiting us at PantheraAdvisors.com or just reach out directly and shoot me a note at Alejandro at PantheraAdvisors.com. All right. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Dealmaker Show. So today is definitely an exciting guest, you know, a guest that is a recovering lawyer, just like myself. Uh, and I think that we're going to be learning quite a bit on his journey. Uh, definitely not the journey that he thought, you know, like he would, he would embark on because uh, no one really in the family was an entrepreneur. But we're going to get into that. But remarkable what he has been able to accomplish. So I don't want to make you wait any longer. So without further ado, let's welcome our guest today, Jason Bimick. Welcome to the show. Thanks for having me here. It's, a, it's an honor. So originally born in Pittsburgh. So uh, how was life growing up there? Um, life growing up in Pittsburgh was actually really interesting um, from a historical perspective, actually. One of the things I talk about is growing up in the shadow of some of these um, industrial titans that existed in Pittsburgh of, you know, the Carnegie Museum and the Frick Conservatory, and but actually kind of like a depressed economic environment. I grew up in the 80s in Pittsburgh, and the population was just going through a lot of decline and economic hardship. So uh, interesting to, to have lived in a place that was once the center of industry, but was going through uh, a kind of tough economic environment when I was growing up. And uh, after, after, I mean, you, you obviously went to university, you did North Carolina, and then you decided to go into investment banking. So Lehman Brothers, so I, I obviously at that point, you know, investment banking was the time where dollars were flushing, you know, everyone making it rain, but you had to face, you know, quite the not so fun, you know, part of it. So tell us about this. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it was a great way to start the career, actually. Um, I learned a ton. And w the reason I decided to do it actually coming out of school was, hey, this is a chance to, to learn a lot about finance, which I, I studied economics in school, but you know, it's it's one thing to study a topic and the other to actually learn it as a profession and kind of looked at it as I'm going to come in, I'm going to do a two year stint at one of the great investment banks. I loved working at Lehman and uh, learn a lot and then figure out what I want to do with my career as a next step. I'd always thought about law school, but wasn't really sure. So looked at it as just this two year stint to learn a lot. And from that perspective was was really successful and ended up sticking around for for four years and doing a internal transfer over from the IB side to the sales and trading side of things. Got it. So obviously once everything, I, w I guess, uh, crashed, I mean, everything was imploding and everything, 
you decided that law school, maybe that was the, the, the thing that, you know, pushed you to, to really go for the next chapter in, in your career, which you felt that it was law, uh, the way to go. But, but you decided to, I mean, you, you were in, in, in the city, in New York City. I mean, here we're talking about the city where you have like most of the big law firms. And, you know, I actually used to work in Midtown too at a law firm called King and Spalding. Uh, but, you know, why, why did you decide, you know, to go to San Francisco to practice law? when you have some of the biggest firms in the city where you were living for so long? Yeah. I mean, so part of it, the journey was really this understanding that I wanted technology to be a, a big part of my career. At Lehman Brothers, I had the fortune of sitting next to some quant traders. And it was the first time I re realized there is a revolution in the way that we work uh, happening, like right underneath our noses. Uh, these quant traders were able to tell you things about bonds or securitized products that no one, even if they'd sat on the trading desk for 30 years, was like capable of, of processing in their mind. You had to process it through computer code. And so that really sitting on the desk there and seeing that planted the seed of technology seems like one of the great historical transitions of our lifetimes. And it, it's exciting to play a small role in that. And the center of that universe, um, you know, particularly back 2008, when I was leaving Lehman Brothers, and uh, 2012, when I was graduating law school, was definitely San Francisco, and to some extent remained that. But uh, that that was really why I definitely had the snobbish New York viewpoint of San Francisco, of its backwater, and no city is as great as New York. So it was begrudgingly um, that I moved to San Francisco to to practice law uh, after cutting my teeth in New York. So I'm sure that, you know, it's interesting here what, what you got in terms of experience, because on one end, you had access to the investment banking side of it. So you were able to see how deals were done, you know, what maybe made good companies, you know, versus bad companies. And now you were going into law where you were able to really take a good understanding as to how contracts, you know, are really written, how to really prevent, you know, from making mistakes when it comes to putting pen to paper. Uh, and you did that for a few years. So I guess what were some of the things that you learned? Uh, maybe like some no-nos that, that you saw with your own eyes that you knew that if you ever were to start a business, you would never, you know, perhaps do. Yeah. I mean, I think one of the things that I, I was able to internalize working on Wall Street and then making the transition to the law is it really is important to have a motivational connection to the work. I enjoyed finance, but it wasn't the the job I felt like I could be happy at for the next 20 years, just in terms of natural interest in the subject. And it did influence how I thought about the my career in the legal profession and being willing to take that pretty big step back in my career. I mean, working on the street for four years, it's not a ton of time, but it's enough to get pretty senior. And, and a lot of my colleagues were were doing really interesting things. And all of a sudden I had just taken three years off of my career to go back to law school. And I was a first year associate, you know, eight years deep, almost nine years deep into my career was kind of like starting over again. But the, the perspective that I gained was it, it's okay to start over if you if you're closer to the center of that, that passion and place that you feel like you can get curious about for the next 20, 30 years. And I, I really do think that one single lesson is is attributable to a lot of the success of Ironclad. Like we've just gotten more curious than our space than anyone else. There's been 30 plus companies doing what we're doing, but 
the the level of questions and the the depth of curiosity is much higher at Ironclad than than our competitors and and historical competitors as well. So let's talk about then that transition from Fenwick and West, where you were a, an attorney, all the way to really bringing Ironclad to life. Uh, at Fenwick and, and West, you were uh, exploring with technology, perhaps like uh, building your own like uh, site things or your weekend projects, you know, sort of speak. So what kind of like, I mean, a lawyer, I mean, a lawyer coding is is kind of like strange. So I guess how, or, or perhaps like building stuff in that nature. So, so tell us, you know, like what perhaps um, triggered you really building stuff or what kind of stuff was, were you building that really pushed you over the edge to really, you know, think, hey, maybe, you know, like there's something that I can do here more as a business. Yeah. I mean, there are some, I would say my inspiration for doing this was was really the quant trader. And that's how I kind of wanted my practice to to work. If you think about what the quant trader is doing, they're using computers in a new and computer language in a, a way that helps them do their core job, which is trading. They're still functionally trading. They're not just pure coders. They're, the objective is to trade better and gather new insights that help you make better trades. And that was really how I conceptualized my my technology involvement at the law firm. I'm still going to be a lawyer. I'm just going to be a tech-enabled lawyer. And it turns out I'm going to have to build a lot of those that tooling myself because it's just not in the market. My intent was never to build the technology. My intent was to go find it in the market. And it was only when I couldn't find it in the market that I realized I'm going to have to make this if I want it to exist. So went out, like hired a coding tutor, taught myself to code over a multi-year time span. And really started making very, very simple applications. As simple as writing a Visual Basic script that would automatically compare a set of documents in one folder with the set of documents in another folder and generate a bunch of PDF red lines. You, I mean, you as a lawyer know the amount of time you spent like clicking buttons to make a red line. <laughs> yeah. uh, for a deal packet, it's like actually insane. And yeah. what I was really trying to do was not the, the really high-end work, but just the low-level administrative work. And that just proved to be a lot more fruitful than I would say I thought it would be going in. I thought I would discover ways to do this um, that existed in the market. And I thought that I wouldn't be able to get as far as I did just hacking together on my own time and nights and weekends. And once I started to go down that rabbit hole, I realized there's really a market opportunity here, uh, especially around this common problem that the every business has, which is making and keeping track of its business contracts. Yeah. So then so then tell us about the moment where you know all of a sudden you said this is something that I have to do because because obviously you know for you it was not a good time. You know you had like close to $300,000 in student, you know, loans which is, you know, yeah. outrageous, you know, like it's it's just broken the whole education system. But anyway, that's a different conversation, but I guess here you are not in the best situation to really start a business. Probably people you thought you were nuts because you also as a lawyer were probably making a decent living to be able to repay, you know, that amount back. So so tell us about that process because I'm sure it was full of uncertainties and probably not a not a good not a good, you know, position to be in to start a business. Yeah, I mean it was it was frightening, I'll I'll be honest. But it also like it was frightening, but it also felt right at the core of it because I did feel like I could see something in the market that I was comfortable making a huge bet would be more of a thing than it it was when I started. 
And it really did feel like I had uh, this insight that I kind of recognized from the trading floor, which is this is going to happen. It's definitely going to happen. Can I be a part of it happening? Like that's the bet. And that's what I'm willing to kind of, of take the risk on. But I, I, I'm willing to bet anything that this will be more of a, a thing, you know, five years from now than it is right now. And I feel like I've got a pretty good fighting chance at actually being part of that, the creation of it. So, um, and that, that thing of course was a system for business contracts, like a, a more automated and streamlined and, uh, internet enabled and connected way of creating a business contract and a better way, an automatic way of keeping track of the terms in business contracts. And, um, so it, it really was like quitting was this moment of this is going to happen. I'm comfortable betting my career uh, on it. And fortunately, we live in a place where uh, Silicon Valley, uh, where, you know, even if the it doesn't happen, like, what's the worst thing that could happen, I could go bankrupt. Yeah, my student loans still get discharged. But I've kind of already started over with the legal career anyway. So let's do it. Um, and I was I was in a position where I wasn't in a, you know, relationship or didn't have kids where I felt like I was only impacting myself and only making foolish decisions for myself. So it, it was enough to put me over the edge to take the leap. So what ended up being the business model of Ironclad for the people that are listening to really get it? Yeah. Uh, so Ironclad has uniquely, I think, always been focused on the same thing, which is helping companies create and manage business contracts. Um, we we kind of have this belief as a company, which is really what led me to, to quit my job and, and start up with my co-founder. Um, and that belief is that there needs to be a digitally native way to make and keep track of business contracts. It's really kind of nuts that something that every business in the world does, which is make contracts, there's no standardized or singular way to do that. Like if you and I were to even make an NDA and we're not using Ironclad, we're going to maybe like download a template from somewhere where I'm going to maybe like put it into Google Docs or email you a Microsoft Word file. Um, when you send it back, I'm probably going to red redline or we're going to do some track changes stuff. Um, if I have to get it approved on my side, I'm going to like randomly send that around my organization. Uh, if we're going to get it signed, let's open up another browser tab. Oh, let, oh we need to like save that as a PDF first. Um, then maybe we're going to load it into an e-signature platform. Then if we want to keep track of the information in that, we're probably going to like do some manual data entry in a spreadsheet maybe or a customized uh, you know, CMS or something. And it's just like, why are we opening 17 browser tabs to make a business contract? That doesn't make any sense. So uh, like the, the kind of life's work is to just streamline that into an easier process and, and capture the digital information in that. Like there's some pretty good terms that NDA you know, we might want to know if um, that information is applicable in some other deal intelligently. Um, and if there's payment terms in a contract that we make, we probably want to actually like send that to our financial system. So those payment terms can actually happen. Um, and, you know, from that perspective, connecting it to a comment you made earlier, I think lawyers do code. Um, I don't think that lawyers code in programming languages that like computers can understand. Yeah. But if you're writing legalese, like you're coding. And it's the same type of um, work. And so part of what we're doing is connecting those a little bit more uh, explicitly, is letting lawyers actually write code. Uh, you don't have to learn JavaScript, but you can write 
a contract that's going to act like software and not act like a PDF. Got it. So then I guess in, in this sense, you know, why do you think there hasn't been, because I mean, you guys basically created a new category here. So why do you think that there hasn't been maybe that much innovation around maybe like the legal, you know, type of uh, a segment yeah. or around what you guys were doing? Why is that the case? So a couple reasons, and I think a lot of folks, even in our market, miss this, and a lot of it's hard for buyers to even understand. The real art to what we're doing is building a customizable, configurable, and robust system for all business contracts that you can create and manage them on. And so, like it's like you and I could probably just like hack together in the time of this call a cool AI demo that would like scan a contract and pull out a a clause or two, and that's great. But the reality is like, you're not going to use that in business because it's wrong 10% of the time and it's impossible to figure out what 10% of the time it's wrong on. Um, and so you might as well just like do the manual data entry. Right. Um, what, what's cool about Ironclad is it's got all of the enterprise-y things that uh, a customer would need to like, hey, if this contract has this language in it when it comes back, like you can automatically trigger this fallback provision and it's going to go to Joe in finance if it's above $10,000 per your company policy. And we're also going to send the payment information to NetSuite when it's done. And we're going to send the customer information to Salesforce. And so like just nothing in no one action in that is complicated. Sending data to Salesforce, like triggering an automated approval. But if you look at the landscape pre-Ironclad and the landscape post-Ironclad, it's like 17 different systems that's handling that, that contract round trip. And what we've really done is is build the layer, the like beautiful interface layer over all of those other systems. And where we found true white space, we've we've actually built it. But you know, like you as a lawyer, I mean, I used to use a separate redlining software. I used to use a separate document managed software. I used to use a separate word processing software. And like in the digital world, that stuff needs to be combined together. Uh, and there's just a lot of technology decisions that need to be made to do that in a way that's usable and configurable. Absolutely. So I guess um, in this case for you, for Ironclad, how much capital have you guys raised today? It's 180 something. I believe it's 187. It might be 183. Let's say over 180 million. That's 100% accurate. Okay. So I guess I guess for you guys, I mean, it it's probably has been an incredible journey when it comes to, to raising money, especially when we're thinking about a new category here that, that you were developing. Yeah. I mean, now maybe it gets easier, you know, to, to convince and to and to talk to people because, because you have all the historicals and all of that stuff. But I guess at the beginning, I'm sure that it was quite a beast to be able to get people comfortable with and enrolled in, in what could be possible with it. So how has been that journey and that progression from one financing cycle to another one, all the way up to your Series D that you recently closed? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's it's funny you bring up an interesting point, which is I think like everyone loves to say like, oh, fundraising is easy, like you get, you must have it so easy. And, you know, uh, not complaining here, we certainly have incredible partners, but fundraising is never easy. It's always, um, you know, convincing folks and building a business that that folks are investing hundreds of millions of dollars in is uh, that, that doesn't happen lightly. Yeah. Um, and it is a heavily diligence process. Um, I once applied for like government work uh earlier in my career and like uh went through a pretty intensive background check um for that uh fortunately didn't pursue that career path but uh the sequoia you know background check much more intensive like there was people from all walks of life like getting interviewed about me and 
Um, there, there's really deep dives on diligence that the the best investors do. And not just on like the fundamentals of the business, but two, three layers down within your org, like who are the people working there? And it's been kind of interesting and fun to to watch how the best investors make decisions. And we have Excel and Sequoia and Bond Capital and um, Y Combinator, of course. So we, we have a nice spectrum into that into that world. So I guess, uh, you know, talking about diligence, because, you know, especially with the with the legal background, you had an idea of, of what diligence was about, you know, especially being on the other side, like pushing, pushing paper, right, pushing the contract. Uh, but I guess uh, for you, what was the most surprising thing, you know, being the one that was receiving the diligence, what was the most surprising thing that you discovered from, and obviously we don't have to mention names, but that some of those investors did to really get down and, and really understand, you know, who was behind this business or what was this business about? Yeah, it's interesting. So I think like a commonality among all investors is they care about fundamentals. And I think that's investors of all, all levels. I would say having observed probably hundreds of investors at this point and their, their process, the best investors in the world are more focused on people than other investors. And they will spend more time relative to other investors investigating people um, and like giving you their reads on people and uh, doing background reference channel checks on people that are like more detailed and, and more layers removed from the network than other investors. Um, and I don't know, this is a data point of one, but uh, if I've drawn any conclusions from being on the other side of hundreds of investors, it's that the, the folks that have the best reputations, it's deserved. And it's because they'll go a couple layers deeper on the personal side of things, not only on the business diligence side of things. Got it. So I guess um, one of the questions that come to mind is here we're talking about business contracts, right? But one of the things that, that is super interesting to me is that, you know, definitely for Ironclad, one of the things that, that has been remarkable is, is the community, you know, and how you guys have been yeah. thinking about community uh, to really push this, this thing forward. So so talk to us about why community has been a big driver for Ironclad. Yeah, I love this topic. And I, I think there's some lessons that are applicable to other segments as well. If I had to draw one piece of advice or, or learning, it would be that if you are doing category creation, which I think we are, you have to do community because category creation requires like a little bit of predicting where the market is going to go. Um, regardless of your existence as a company and then orienting your company towards that. It's the Gretzky, like skate to where the puck is going to be uh, type of thing. And if you're going to create a category, you kind of have to, you can't just will that category into existence. It's category prediction might be a better term than category creation. You just have to skate to where that category is going to be. I don't think you can actually do a lot to will it into existence. And, um, you know, a company that just kind of like thinks up a category and then tries to go to create that, I don't think will be successful. But a company that tries to identify a category that's going to exist and the market hasn't figured it out yet, I think that's where I'm going to make my bets on on category creation. Um, and community allows you to be a better predictor of where a category is headed or where a need is headed that will a category will form around than other like means available to you as a software company. So I'm a, a lawyer like you and Really, what we did is we just got curious about the lawyers in the early days and the in-house legal departments and 
from there, the legal operations folks who are often non-lawyers working in, in legal departments. And so we, we kind of just got to know them as people, not just like what they would want in a piece of software, but like, you know, where do you live? Like, what's your family like? What do you read on the way to work? Uh, just really curiosity about their lives. And we found forums to do that, which we still have today. Um, they're often pretty nerdy forums. Like we have an event coming up tomorrow called Rooftop Law School. We've done since we were a like four person company and it's people reading a legal case together and discussing it. And all sorts of folks come to this, like potential prospects come to it, random people come to it. Um, but just like creating that forum for people to be nerds about their profession lets you learn about about it in a way that, you know, the bigger companies are not holding rooftop law schools and trying to get their, to know their customers at that level. That's really cool. So I guess um, in this sense, you know, for the people that are listening and watching, uh, to get an idea on the scope of the operation or perhaps even the size of Ironclad, anything that you can share, you know, in terms of numbers, maybe numbers of employees or anything? Yeah, we're so we're exactly 250 people, uh, not even a rounded number there. Um, we, we've got four hubs. Um, so we've got a New York, San Francisco, uh, Indianapolis, and a remote hub. Uh, we just announced our first uh, big acquisition. It's a company called PackSafe. That's the basis for our Indiana hub. And um, they're a really interesting addition to our, our kind of product arsenal in that they do click wrap in terms of service agreements. So think about how many of those are, exist on the web. PackSafe is powering hundreds of millions of those. Uh, number one provider in the world uh, in terms of quality of product and uh, pervasiveness in, in the enterprise around ClickRap and really just fits into our, our vision of creating the digital business contract. So yeah, 250 people, 180 plus million raised, Series D stage uh, based in those four hubs, including remote. And um, we're, we're moving. Very cool. Uh, and I guess, you know, imagine if, if you go to sleep tonight, Jason, and you wake up in a world where the vision of Ironclad is fully realized, what does that world look like? Ah, uh, that's an amazing world. Um, so that world looks like Ironclad is the platform for business contracts. And a lot of what folks are excited about with AI or blockchain is possible on Ironclad. Uh, and, you know, when you sign a contract, the information automatically flows over to your payroll system and uh, lights up a big green check when uh, that payment has actually been received. And your sales folks always know the latest customer information and diligence uh, happens in a snap because all of the contracts at every company are are automatically organized and tagged and searchable and existing in in one place so it's a world of like very seamless and sophisticated business contracting very cool now imagine that i put you in a time machine and you're able to go back in time to go back in time perhaps to that time where you were still a practicing lawyer at penwick and west and you were thinking about maybe a world where where you would launch your own thing, your own business, uh, and really put, you know, all those problems that you are seeing and 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 solving them, you know, with with a solution. So, if you were to have a chat with your younger self, with that younger Jason, you know, that was still a lawyer, and give yourself one piece of advice before launching a business, what would that be, and why? Given what you know now. Great question. I think it's something about 
um, like know thyself. Um, I, I, that's been one of the highest leverage things for me is, is as a CEO, you know, a lot of, of roles, like there's a prescriptive way to grow. I think the job of the CEO is to keep up with the pace of the organization and, and really like lead the pace of the organization. And as a founder, like there's no training for this job. There's no training for being a founder CEO. Um, and you have to do a great job. So the only tool you really have for aligning those two things is self-knowledge and personal growth. And it, it's like deeper than just professional growth. So um, investing in that and and like getting serious about committing to that um, is something I've learned to do, but I probably could have learned to do earlier. And I, I think that would pay the highest dividends if I was able to to get there faster. Wow. I love that. So I guess... Uh... Jason, for the people that are listening and watching, what is the best way for them to reach out and say hi? Yeah, so uh, we have chat on our website. Um, I, I've loved this feature. Um, best way to reach out to Ironclad is ironcladapp.com. And um, there's a number of ways to get in touch on there, but give a, give a try on the chat. Give us a shout there. Amazing. Well, Jason, thank you so much for being on the Dealmaker Show today. Thanks for having me. It's been a pleasure. If you like the show, make sure that you hit that subscribe button. If you could leave a review as well, that would be fantastic. And if you got any value, either from this episode or from the show itself, share it with a friend. Perhaps they also appreciate it. So also remember that if you need any help, whether it is with your fundraising efforts or with selling your business, you can reach me at alejandro at pantheraadvisors.com. You've reached the end of another episode of the Dealmakers podcast. For free resources and materials, head over to alejandrocremades.com. Thank you for listening and see you at the next episode.